So this morning, I want to start with, uh, as, as I do a lot of times, it seems like I either start with a question or a word. We're going to start with a word this morning, and the word is standard, standard. And as I say it, it's like, it's, it's a pretty familiar word, and the, the more you say it, it's one of those words that to me gets to sounding funny the more you say it, standard, 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 but I'll stop there, but... Um, but do you know what standard means? It can mean a few different things. It can be a flag or a banner that flies over somebody. That's the standard to which we look to. But what we're talking about today, I'm going to define from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It's their third and fourth definitions. And the word standard means something established by authority. Something established by custom or general consent as a model or example. Something set up and established by authority as a rule for the measure of quantity, weight, extent, value, or quality. Standard. In looking for something to illustrate this word, I found this illustration. This is funny. On the outskirts of Paris, that's in France, and the foyer, not foyer, it's not foyer, it's foyer, just so you know, foyer. On the outskirts of Paris, an underground vault holds a platinum cylinder known as Le Grand K. Le Grand K. This carefully guarded object sits under three glass domes. Three different people have three different keys that are all needed to open the vault. Since 1889, this object has been the standard for the kilogram. It is the measure against which all other weights are measured in the metric system. But there's a problem with Le Grand K. It has lost 50 micrograms, roughly equal to a grain of sand over the last 130 years. Scientists, it says, are now looking for a more accurate standard. Well, shoot. Ain't that a kick in the head, huh? Le Grand K is losing weight. I'm kind of jealous, right? Anywho, scientists are looking for a more accurate standard. Hmm. When your standard isn't standard anymore, you've got to look for a more accurate standard. Well, today, as we begin 1 Timothy, we see a case where some folks have taken the standard and found it wanting. And what they've done in response to finding the standard wanting is not scientific, nor is it right or good. So then what do you do? Well, Paul tells us exactly what we're supposed to do as we begin today. And we'll start, obviously, with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Our epistle, which again is a letter, epistle means letter, starts like a letter. Now we write our letters today by saying, Dear John, Dear Kate, whatever, or whoever we're writing to. So the recipient goes first in our letters. But all 13 of Paul's letters in the Bible begin with his name as the introduction. He identifies himself first, Paul. 
And then in these 13 letters after his name, he follows his name with some different descriptions of himself. Here in 1 Timothy, which would have been written around 62 to 66 AD, which would be near the end of Paul's life, Paul describes himself as, quote, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now it's important to note how Paul describes himself here. If you remember last week, and if you didn't hear last week's message, again, it's going to be pretty important as we go forward that that introductory message is heard because it gives us a lot of information that you're going to need to help apply this stuff that we look at today. It's important that Paul describes himself as an apostle. And that apostleship is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and know this, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So Paul being an apostle and that apostleship being a prominent word describing himself makes this introduction very important because, remember what we said apostle means? I'm going to give you the definition here. Apostolos. A delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders, specifically applied to the twelve apostles of Christ, which Paul is included in because they had twelve. Judas killed himself. The eleven appointed another guy by casting lots to take Judas's place. But we never hear of his name again. But Jesus shows up to Paul and says, I'm commissioning you. Paul saw Jesus in the flesh, which makes him an apostle. So he is one of the twelve apostles of Christ. And in a broader sense, it can be applied to other eminent Christian teachers, Barnabas, Timothy, Silvanus, or Silas. And the big thing with Barnabas, Timothy, and Silas is their connection with Paul, which gives them authority to say this is what Christ says. And what's so important out of this, if you'll remember last week in the intro message, the words of the apostle are as the words of the one who sent him. Okay? So when Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, then he is saying, what I'm about to say are the very words of God. And that's incredibly important. This is not up for our interpretation or our like or dislike. It's for us to line up to the words of God. If God, if Jesus Christ descended today, stood right here, I'd move, he could stand right here, okay? I'd get out of the way and started speaking to you, you would say, well, Jesus said that, so it's important. What Paul is saying as an apostle is, listen to what I say because God is saying it through me. And the one who sent Paul is identified by Paul. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So there's no confusion here, right? Paul is speaking as one sent by God himself, even in this personal letter to Timothy, his disciple. Paul is speaking as one sent by God himself. And we also saw last week that Paul had clearly said that the gospel that he was proclaiming was not from any man, but that he had received it as a direct revelation from Christ himself. And here, in his first letter to Timothy, Paul says that his apostleship is by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus, whom, Paul says, is our hope. Paul is sent directly from God and he would reiterate this time and again as he opened his letters identifying himself as an apostle. So that's Paul's introduction and self-identification. So, quiz time. Let's see how good you guys are. 
Who do you think this letter of 1 Timothy is addressed to? Huh? Verse 2. To Timothy, you were probably right. My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so yeah, the first letter of Timothy is written to a guy named Timothy. The name Timothy means one who honors God, which seems to be a good description of this fellow that we see here. We briefly talked about him last week, noting that Paul met him in Lystra on his second missionary journey. And when he met him, he desired to take Timothy with him on his travels, and that ended up happening. So Timothy traveled extensively with Paul and was a close companion of Paul. How close? Well, Paul calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now that could mean a few different things. It could mean that Paul had introduced Timothy to Jesus in a saving way, and that is implied in the Greek word here. It's not, it's not a physical son as much as it is a spiritual son. That's part of it. But we also know from 2 Timothy 1, 5-6 that we mentioned last week that Timothy grew up in a household of faith. His mother and his grandmother were both believers, were both good Jewish ladies, even though his father was a Greek. And uh, Paul said there in 2 Timothy 1, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And you see that laying on of hands, that means association with. That means a sharing of life. That means you and I share the same goal, life, mission. And so you see this sonship as Paul is laying his hands on Timothy and saying, hey, let's do this together. We're, we're in this together. So I don't think my true child in the faith just means that Paul is Timothy's spiritual father, that he led him to the Lord, uh, modern day Christians would say. Um, it seems Paul expounded the full meaning of the Jewish faith, which found its fulfillment in Jesus to Timothy and his mother and his grandmother. But it seems Timothy was faithful before coming into contact with Paul and knowing the full truth. So... I think that the use of my true child in the faith here would point to an additional type of connection between Paul and Timothy. And I think it's just as simple as this. Paul loved Timothy like a father loves a son. And it would seem from other passages uh, that Paul held Timothy in special esteem beyond and above most others that Paul operated with. Uh, John MacArthur points out these two passages, and I want us to look at them as well. Philippians 2, 19 through 22. Paul referring to Timothy to the Philippians, not to Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Listen to what he says about Timothy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And there's some strong, affectionate words there. Okay. Also, 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul to the Corinthian church says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So to the Philippian church and to the Corinthian church, Paul speaks glowingly of Timothy, speaking of him as a son, my beloved and faithful child. Nobody's like him, Paul says. And that's a special relationship. So those two passages show the high regard that Paul felt for and about Timothy, which may give a little more insight into this moniker of Timothy being Paul's true child in the faith. All being said, it's obvious that this relationship between Paul and Timothy was unique for sure. 
And Paul's wish and prayer for this beloved comrade of his is for, quote, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Paul very often uses the phrase grace and peace as a blessing to those he's ministering or writing to. Um, David and Luke and I text each other in the morning to make sure we're up and that we're not being lazy bums. Um, and like one morning I was texting them back and it was my eyes were like foggy and it was and I was trying to type grace and peace and I literally typed gravy and peas. <laughs> true. That happened. I'll get a screenshot of it sometime and show you. I'm like, what in the world is going on? For me to wish peas on somebody is like death, right? So (laughs) that's a true story. But Paul very often uses the phrase grace and peace as a blessing to those he's ministering to or writing to. And he knows and makes so much of the grace of God and says that all that God does is to the praise of His glorious grace. In Ephesians 1, which we've seen so much recently in our studies here on Wednesday night. And if you're not coming on Wednesday night, please come. It's been so good. Uh, so grace is the heart of the Christian faith, and I don't think that's an overstatement. And then there's peace. The common Jewish greeting was shalom, and that word means peace. And the Romans boasted of their Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. Okay, so Grace and peace, these things would have been common buzzwords. So for Paul to pray for grace and peace, he's asking for the best from God for those he's praying for. And for Timothy, he adds to grace and peace, mercy in there. A word that means kindness or goodwill. Paul is asking that God the Father in Christ Jesus the Lord would show his beloved disciple grace, mercy, and peace. The best of God's gifts for the best of Paul's guys. And it's a pretty good intro. And just so you know, John MacArthur preached three hour-long messages on these two verses alone. And I I commend them to you. I can see how he could spend that much time because there's so much there. But we're going to move on into the first real section past the introduction uh, as as to why Paul is writing what he's writing to Timothy. So let's look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay? So Paul says that he was going to Macedonia. So Paul's going to Macedonia, Greece, that area. And at that time, had chosen to have Timothy remain at Ephesus. So it looks like they were both in Ephesus, and Paul left to go to Macedonia, leaving Timothy there. The other option is that Paul was somewhere else and headed to Macedonia and sent word to Timothy in Ephesus to stay there instead of coming to be with him. Either way, Paul is writing to Timothy to re-emphasize that Timothy is to remain on in Ephesus because there's work that needs to be done there. And what is that work? Now, before I get into that, just hitting me here, remember, Timothy is an overseer at the church in Ephesus. And he's overseeing the church at Ephesus with other overseers. And this is a letter to the church, to the leader of that church. Not the one leader, but one of the leaders of that church. And so as we move into today, keep in mind, this is talking about believers. This is talking about Christians, young Christians for sure, but 
elders and leaders of the Christian church there in Ephesus, of whom Timothy is there to help and instruct through their process. Remember, we talked last week about the weird way that Paul would blow into a town, preach a gospel that's never been heard about a guy that died and came back from the dead and ascended into heaven, and he'd preach and people would believe, and Paul would blow out of town and come back sometimes and appoint elders and blow out of town again. He didn't spend much time there usually. He did spend quite a bit of time in Ephesus if you go through the book of Acts. But there's just these young fledgling churches and they need help. Okay, So Timothy is in Ephesus and Paul's saying stay there because there's something that needs to happen there. There's work that needs to be done there. And what's that work? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy's ministry here, Timothy's charge from Paul is to deal with the teachers. And that thought will continue in verse 4. But from this first thought, we see that there's some work to be done in the area of doctrine. And I want to use that word for doctrine. That's actually, the Greek is one word for what we translate as to teach any different doctrine. And the word's a doozy. It's heterodidaskleo. Heterodidaskleo. It's probably a made-up word. Paul, Paul probably joined some words together. So hetero means different. Heterosexuals, okay, the opposite sex. Didaskalo basically means teaching. And so it means to teach other or doctrine. Deviating from the truth. And know this, Paul will be intensely purposeful in making sure that any doctrine that is taught in the churches he's working with is true, pure doctrine. Doctrine in line with the revelation that he received directly from Christ himself and was verified when he presented his revelation to the other apostles. Why? Why is this so important? Because, please listen to me, doctrine matters. And the current tone is that doctrine is not as important as your personal relationship with Jesus. Just as long as you're having a good experience with Jesus, that's all that matters. Hogwash. All of the three pastoral letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, will emphasize the importance of doctrine as foundational. You can't build on anything else. So this is a big deal. Big enough for Paul to leave his most trusted companion in one of the biggest and most influential churches in the Roman world to deal with and handle. I'm sending Timothy there. I'm sending my best guy there. And Paul says that Timothy is to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul is charging Timothy to give commandments to the teachers in the church at Ephesus. So Timothy obviously has some authority to be charging anyone about anything, especially as far as doctrine goes. Timothy had learned that doctrine directly from Paul himself and had traveled with him and heard him teach it and over and over and over. And for Timothy to have to deal with it with this authority that Timothy has seems to imply that it has to be done with and to people of authority, teachers, leaders, elders. So this must be dealing with the elders there in Ephesus. Now keep that in mind as we move through here. He's not dealing with unbelievers. He's not even dealing with just some folks who attend the church. He's dealing with the leaders of the church. Those who are spreading the different doctrine are teaching it. 
And doctrine that is taught becomes doctrine that is lived out, unfortunately, in this case, because they're teaching bad doctrine. And Paul warns the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 29-31, he was getting ready to leave them for his arrest. This is what he said to the elders at Ephesus when he left them. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, church, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. And they're having doctrinal problems. Their teachers are teaching things just like Paul said would happen. That's come up from among their own members. And now they're leaders and now they're teachers. And they're teaching things they shouldn't be teaching. And Paul warned them it was going to happen. And it's happening. And now it seems the very thing that he warned about was happening. His worst nightmare was coming true. So I'm going to send Timothy. And what are they teaching? Now watch this. Verse 4. So he charged them to not teach things that are contrary to good doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, just before we jump into that, in Paul's teaching, what is usually the opposite of faith? Works or law. Okay? So he says something that's rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the doctrine that is in question, it's not abundantly clear, but Paul charges Timothy to focus on these false teacher elders getting devoted to myths and endless genealogies. Now we don't know exactly what that means or what it refers to, but remember this Ephesian congregation that Timothy was overseeing and working with the elders there was largely Gentile. Remember Paul had been been entrusted with ministry to the Gentiles. So these folks in Ephesus had probably been polytheists. They had many gods. They, They worshiped and believed in many gods, probably Greek or Roman gods like you've heard about in mythology. Jupiter, Zeus, Hercules, Ares, and a full pantheon or two of other gods. And that being said, but they would have known that Jesus had been a Jew. Coming from and living in Israel, Jesus had been. Fully immersed in the Jewish faith, Jesus had been. So there was a lot of clamoring to find connections to those Jewish roots for these Gentiles. David Stern, in his Jewish commentary on the New Testament, points out that these non-Jews would have a, quote, feeling that he was not a full-fledged member of God's chosen people unless he could prove that he had some Jewish blood, end of quote. So they'd get busy on Ancestry.com, obviously, and they'd look back into their histories for some distant relative that may have had some connections with real Jewish people. Hence the myths and genealogies. And so then they start telling stories, right? Yeah, yeah. my great-great-grandfather was a guy named Shadrach, and he was a full-blooded Jew. And I heard he even survived a Babylonian firing squad once. (laughs) Stories get bigger and bolder as they trickle down, right? Until basically no shred of the truth remains. And that would lead to speculations rather than stewardship, which Paul mentions here. And boy, do we know something of this, right? 
These elders were venturing into new areas of truth, finding new things, maybe even creating new things to come across as edgy and mind-blowing. Their speculations, translated as exegesis, were over-investigations, a matter of debate or questioning leading to controversy. And boy, do we major in these types of things today. Somebody steps into the pulpit or onto their podcast or onto some vlog. And I know I'm going to stir up a hornet's nest here, they say, but boy, oh boy, I got a truth bomb to drop on you today. Your faith may not even be real. Everything you've heard before may be wrong. And the, the, the dramatic music plays and then they go into their podcast where they say nothing. Those types of things. That's what's going on here in Ephesus. Researching minor insignificant issues, twisting them out of line and proportion, and then leading and teaching others to pursue the same futile track of thinking that, that, that they're presenting a truth, a new truth. And that's all they did. Speculating instead of, Paul says, stewardship. Well, that's powerful. Speculating instead of stewardship. That word stewardship means management of a household. These elders and teachers weren't supposed to be developing a following by majoring in minors. They were supposed to be managing the household of God, faithfully distributing the treasures of the gospel that God had entrusted to them as under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the stewardship from God that is by faith. Again, keep that in mind because it's incredibly important going forward. The stewardship from God that is by faith. And what does that look like? Well, Paul makes it clear in verse 5, which is as clear as anything in the Scriptures. This is not complicated at all. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That'd be a good one to write on your mirror or to get tattooed backwards on your forehead so you see it in the mirror the right way. This is a huge statement. The aim of our charge, the singular aim, is what? Is love. And that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. These wayward leaders were speculating instead of stewarding that which was from God. And what does that involve? Well, Paul makes it apparent to say the least. The aim of our charge, the stewardship from God that is by faith that we are to faithfully dispense to God's people has one clear aim. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now let's look at that a little closer because it is really big. The aim of our charge is love. The aim is love. That's clear and unmistakable. The goal in doing what Paul, Timothy, the elders at Ephesus, and the goal of every Christian is love. The goal is love. You're like, quit saying that. No, I will not. And that's the Greek word agape which is the self-sacrificing, Christ-embodied love that lays down one's life and lays down one's preferences so that others can reap the benefits of that love. That's the goal. What's the goal of your Christian life? It's agape. The goal of your Christian life is to love. 
every single one of us. And that love issues from, comes from, finds its source in what? If a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now all three of those things, the heart, the conscience, and the faith, where are they? Inside, right? Are they external or internal? They're internal. So the aim of all of the Christian life and doctrine is love that issues from a person's insides. The goal is not, 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 not an external righteousness, keeping laws and claiming a bloodline that is physically pure. No. Instead, this love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now that may seem elementary, but come on, how important is it? It's huge. Or huge. And these Ephesian elders had already strayed from this all-important goal and were striving for a bloodline to brag on. Or maybe a bunch of good deeds that show that they're keeping the law of God. More on that in the following verses. Real quick, and I don't have this up there, I want to jump to Revelation 2. If you've got Bibles or apps there, go to Revelation. This is just, I meant to put this in there and I didn't. Jesus is sending letters to the churches through John here in Revelation. And he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Watch this. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What's the goal? It's love. And they've abandoned the love that they had at first. Now this is probably later than Paul wrote. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They had left their first love. They had left their goal. And these Ephesian elders were starting to teach things that were not in alignment with that goal. And so here, Paul is instructing Timothy to charge, command, and beat into these guys the most important thing. And that most important thing is love that issues from a God-wrought cleansing of the inner man. Nobody can clean your inside except Jesus. There's a lot more here, but it'll play out as we move on. So for now, let's look at what's happening as a result of this elder erring, verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, there we go, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul is zeroing in on these certain persons, the particular offenders, whom Timothy would know and understand the reference to. Oh, those guys. He may have even been the one telling Paul about these guys. And Paul says that these certain persons, by swerving from the inner states of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, see how it's plural, these, back there in verse 6, by swerving from these, he's referring back to the three things, the internal things, 
Then these persons have wandered into what? Into vain discussion. Their talk, their teaching is vain. And that means it's empty. The literal translation is it's vain jangling. See, these guys have swerved from their inner purity, which can only come from the effectual work of the blood of Jesus, to blabbering on and on about nothing. They talk and talk, but they don't say nothing. It's pointless and it's powerless. And now watch this. He says that they are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make, about which they make confident assertions. You know what jumps out to me from that statement? The fact that these people, these first century new believers, leaders of the early Christian church, want to be teachers of the law. What? Practice? The law? What's that all about? Why would first generation Christians in Ephesus have any interest in teaching the law? I guarantee you that Paul was not establishing churches based on the law. Quite the contrary. I'd say he fought to focus on grace and combat all teachings that involved law keeping. We see that in so many of his letters where he's fighting back against Judaizers who slip in behind him and tell Christians that to please God, they have to keep the Mosaic law. And these elders here in Ephesus are desiring to be teachers of the law. And Paul says they actually don't know anything about the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're asserting their faux Jewish background and teaching a faux version of the law of the Jews, but they don't know anything about it. And they're confidently asserting that they know this stuff, even though it's made up fluff. They're airbags. And remember, these are the elders, the leaders, the teachers in this church. No wonder Paul is urging Timothy to authoritatively drop a verbal beat down on these guys. There's a lot of work to do here. Now Paul's going to explain a little bit about the law that he knows a lot about. These guys know nothing about. To help Timothy deal with these guys. Watch this, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now we could blow by that, but it is so important. Okay, And it's got a comma at the end of this clause, so it's not the end of the sentence. Just the opening of a big thought that actually runs all the way through verse 11. But I want to pause here and set that stage. Paul referred to these fellows wanting to be teachers of the law. Now he addresses some specifics of that law. Now we know, he says, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now that's a pretty interesting statement. What does it mean to use the law lawfully? Anybody ever seen people who were law enforcement who used the law in a not lawful way? Yeah. Exerting authority for their own gain, for their own purposes, instead of the good of everybody else. So you can use the law unlawfully. But here, Paul is talking about the law of God. How can it be used lawfully? And we have to see the rest of this statement to get that answer. But let's preface it by seeing that the law is indeed good, but only if it is used lawfully. So there's a right and a wrong way to use the law. Anybody ever been on the wrong end of law preaching? (laughs) Anybody ever preached law? Oops. 
repent in dust and ashes. So, with that in mind, look at verses 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's a lot to process. Actually, it's a pretty simple statement with a long list after it. Remember, we're looking at how to use the law lawfully so that it's good, so that the law is good. And so Paul says, now stay with me. This is a little bit, we're going to have to grind some gears here. Paul says that we have to understand that the law is not laid down for the just. Now don't miss that. The law is not laid down for the just. Who are the just? Well, at the end of all things, every single person who has ever lived will be judged according to the law. Let me say that again. At the end of all things, every single person from Adam to the last man who has ever lived will be judged according to the law. You're going, but that don't, that don't feel right. Stay with me. And the only way to be just in the eyes of God is to keep the law perfectly. Anybody clean record at this point? No, you don't have a clean record. You have broken every law, basically. You were born with a stain of sin from the inside that affects the outside. We're all born sinners. So none of us have, could, or will keep the law perfectly. And those who keep the law perfectly are the just ones. So who's the just ones? In and of ourselves, it ain't us. But here's a question. Has anybody ever kept the law perfectly? One guy. One guy, a guy by the name of Jesus, who will save his people from their sins, who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Only Jesus has ever kept the law perfectly. So only he's just, right? Well, yes and no. Jesus is just and perfect and kept the law perfectly. No one else ever has or will. So... Is everyone else besides Jesus unjust? Well, again, yes and no. The gospel says that if we will place our trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ to be our righteousness by grace through faith, then we are given that perfect righteousness as a gift. Our sins are taken away, expiation, and we are given His perfect perfection, law-keeping self, imputation, and that gift makes us just. That's salvation. And so once we have placed our faith in Christ and our sins are taken away and we're given the perfect righteousness of Christ, then the law is not laid down for us when we are justified. You're going, okay, I'm, 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 I'm still buzzing, okay? 
It was in place beforehand, the law was, Paul says in Galatians 3, for a certain purpose. Look at Galatians 3, 23 to 25. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Oh, this should make you yell and rejoice. This is good stuff. And I'm not saying me. I'm saying this, okay? That law that was laid down for unjust people, God gave us as a guardian. And that word means the tutor that led children back and forth to school in those days. The law's purpose is to lead people to Christ. The law was in place to show our complete inability to keep it. The law was in place to show us our need for a Savior. And now that our faith has been placed in Christ, the law has accomplished its job. The law said, you can't keep us. Here's somebody who did trust in Him. It showed us our need for our Savior. And now that our faith has been placed in Christ, the law is not for us anymore. It still has a purpose, and we'll talk about that at the end. But now that faith, our faith has been placed in Christ, the law is not for us. It's accomplished its purpose for the justified. It led us to Christ. But Paul says back in 1 Timothy 1.9, that same law is still there and it's laid down for the lawless. Those who have not received the free gift of Christ's perfect righteousness are going to be judged according to that law. And they are woefully short of its demands for perfection. And the law is there to condemn them. And Paul gives a list of 14 groups or characteristics of these people. I'm going to read them again and we'll just kind of talk about them as we go. The lawless. And again, if you don't see lawlessness increasing out there, you're not looking. And the lawless will be condemned by the law, the law of God. Disobedient. People that aren't obedient to those in authority. And again, if you don't see that growing out there, you ain't looking. The ungodly. God is hated in the public square. The law will judge sinners because it's sin that the law is exposing. The unholy, which means not perfect like God. The profane. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. Kids, don't hit your folks. They just stoned you for that, according to the law, by the way. And that sounds like a silly statement, but really, it gets to the point that people don't even respect their mother and father, and they're hitting their mother and father. That's what those without the law end up doing. They're murderers. The sexually immoral. Now again, that's the junk drawer term, porneia. Any sexual sin outside of the holiness of a man and a woman in holy matrimony. That's sexual immorality. And he gets more specific. Men who practice homosexuality. You say, well, you can't condemn me for practicing homosexuality. I don't have to. The law does. Enslavers. It's anti-law to enslave people. And those who do enslave people will stand accountable under the law. Liars. Anybody ever told a lie before? Liars. Me too. 
perjurers. What's perjury? Perjury is lying under oath in order to alter testimony. And lastly, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. All of these things, even with that big omnibus ending there, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, all of these things, all of these people will be condemned by the law when the end comes. And the law is laid down for these people. The law is there by God's purpose, in God's plan, to condemn these people. That's its purpose for them. The law is there literally to damn them. And it will. So, getting back to the original question, how do we use the law lawfully? The lawful use of the law serves to point the justified to Christ and to condemn those who aren't and won't be justified. That's how you use the law lawfully. That means you don't teach or preach the law to believers saying you've got to keep this law. That's unlawfully using the law. Or lawfully excusing unbelievers because it really doesn't apply to you in your time and your place. That's an unlawful use of the law. And it seems that some of the elders in Ephesus were unlawfully using the law to either puff themselves up or to tear down the believers in their care not knowing what they were doing. Which was contrary to the gospel. Which Paul points out by showing that what he was saying, that what Paul was saying lined up with the gospel. Verse 11, our last verse for the day. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul is saying that all of what he has just said is in accordance with, in line with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which he, Paul, has been entrusted. Justification by grace, condemnation under the law, correction to false teachers, care of the flock, it's all in the teaching that Paul had received and had shared with the Ephesians. He had been entrusted with that gospel and had faithfully shared it and is now diligently shepherding according to the same gospel. And that gospel is, quote, of the glory of the blessed God. We've seen and said this a few times again on Wednesday nights that everything from beginning to end is from and for God to the praise of His glorious grace. So justification, damnation, sin, righteousness, law, grace, it's all for God's glory and it's all contained in the gospel. And that is the standard. And it can't be changed or altered or lose any micrograms at all. So command them, Timothy, to return to the standard, not to deviate from it, not to establish their own standard by which they can measure themselves. Bring them back to the standard. They are to be conformed to the standard, not try to conform the standard to their whims and wishes. And we would do well to pay attention as well. And to apply, obviously, what we've looked at today. So we're going to look at application through three A's. Attention, anathema, and aim. Attention, anathema is A-N-A-T-H-E-M-A, anathema, I'll explain that, and aim. Attention, anathema, and aim are our application points. First one is attention. I said it earlier and I'll say it here again. I've probably said it a hundred, maybe a thousand times. Not enough. 
Doctrine matters. And it matters a lot. There is no faithful Christian life apart from sound doctrine. Which makes what pretty important then? The Scriptures. The Bible. We are to spend our lives mastering what is found in the Bible so that our doctrine is right. Justin Peter said this, 26 of the 27 books of the New Testament directly warn against false doctrine and or falsers. Pretty big deal, right? So then what are we supposed to do? When we get to Titus, we'll see this. It's a ways up the road for sure. Talking about elders, leaders, teachers. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. When we get into Titus, you're going to see a connection between sound doctrine and good deeds. You can't have one without the other. Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Don't change the standard. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. What should I do in this situation? Well, the doctrine is this. And if you contradict it, you will be rebuked. That's why we do covenant membership. So that we can encourage, instruct, and rebuke if we need to. On the authority of the scriptures that's been entrusted to the elders to oversee your souls. And we're going to give an account as elders of how we handled that charge. And it's always according to the doctrine, the trustworthy word as taught. So what should we do? Here's your application. 1 Timothy 4.16, we'll see this up the road. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Why? For by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. How important is the doctrine, the teaching? It's salvation important. It's eternity important. Moms, dads, what are you teaching your kids? Hopefully it's not what you think or what you believe or what you want or what you desire. Hopefully it's the doctrine, the teaching. And you should keep a close watch on yourself that you're lining up with the doctrine and what you're teaching other people according to the standard Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Know what sound doctrine is and know what sound doctrine is not so that you can not just rebuke the false teaching or the unsound doctrine, but so that you can correct according to sound doctrine. Not this, but this. So pay close attention. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. That's application point one. Attention. So the second one is anathema. Now the word anathema means cursed. And all that the law can do for your salvation is damn you. That's all the law can do for your salvation. Literally. The law cannot save you. You are not saved by works of the law. You are not saved by deeds that you do according to the law because you are a broken sinner in and of yourself. So if you're trying to approach God on the basis of the law and your law keeping, all that you can do is be damned. Well, I'm going to try a little harder to do a little better. You will be damned. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I am doing better, and you're going to hell if your trust is in yourself and your efforts. But I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. You're a sinner. You're unholy. You're unrighteous in and of yourself. You're like, doggone, why do you hate me? I don't hate you. I love you. That's why I'm telling you that. We are all sinners, and if we try to trust the law to save us, all we are going to do is to be damned. If the law doesn't point you to your need for a Savior, then it can only show you your complete inability to save yourself. You can't get there from here, is all that the law can teach you. And listen, we are in southern West Virginia, rural Appalachia. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You should do the right thing. You know better. Your mama told you. Your grandma told you. It's good enough for my grandpa. It's good enough for you. He was a good man. Why aren't you a good man? Anybody ever heard that stuff? That's law. And it can only lead you to hell. You don't believe me? Galatians 3, 10 to 12. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Galatians 5.4 You are severed from Christ, Paul says to the Galatians, if you go to circumcision to save you. Because there were people coming in Galatia who were saying you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be saved. And Paul says you go that route, you're severed from Christ. Because you're trying to be justified by the law. And the law cannot justify anyone. You've fallen away from grace if you lean on law to save you. And listen... We said, well, I know, I know that law didn't save me, but I'm trying real hard to keep the law now. Guess what? That's exactly what Paul's saying you shouldn't do. So what do we do with the law? Should we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? Heavens no. John Piper has a great message on this passage. Again, I commend it to you. And he says in that message that the law is not useless to believers. We read and meditate on the law to see Christ even now. So the law is not bad or wrong and does not lead those who trust in Christ to hell. It leads us to Jesus, he says, even now. He says it this way, quote, Justified saints who have come to Christ by faith read the law and meditate on it as those who have died to it as the ground of your justification and who have died to it as the power of your sanctification. The law will not save you. The law will not sanctify you. Only Christ, only the Holy Spirit of God can do those things. But we look to the law because Jesus says, you look at the law and you're trying to live your life by the law, but it's they that speak of me. So we look to the law to see Christ again. The same reason that the law was there as a tutor to lead us to Christ, it's still there to point us to Christ. It has accomplished its work if we're believers. It led us to Christ for our salvation. And now we look at it and we don't hate the law. You'll see Paul say in Romans 7, I agree with the law, joyfully concur with the law in my inner man. We're not anti-law, we're anti-law for salvation and sanctification. We're pro-law so that we might see Christ. The purpose of the law for the believer is to see Christ. Now, if you're an unbeliever, the purpose of the law is to condemn you, not to save you. 
So anathema means you're cursed if you're leaning on the law to save you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, or two ways about it. So turn away from law-keeping to save you. Turn away from law-keeping to try to sanctify you. It can do neither. All the law can do is point you to Christ, who alone can save you, who alone can sanctify you. And these Ephesian elders were using the law, and they were exerting their dominance and their knowledge of the law, even though they knew nothing about it. And they're using the law in an unlawful way. And please, God, purify us from being a law-driven church. Purify your church of law-keeping because the law can only curse us if we're leaning on it for our salvation or our sanctification. The point of the law is to lead us to Christ. Attention, anathema, and finally, aim. This one's pretty easy, right? What is the aim? What is the goal of the teaching? Love is the goal. Love is the aim of the Christian life. Love is the standard. Anything else, if, if anything that comes out of my teaching or preaching is not in line with love, it's out of line. Anything else, anything less or more, love and something else, is error. Any talk of any different doctrine, any talk of there being no damnation, any talk that, there is, that is not centered on love as the goal is substandard. How could God be loving and send people to hell? He's perfectly loving by sending people to hell. You're like, I wrestle with that one. You should wrestle with that one. That's a tough one. But God is completely loving and completely just. And according to His just standards, He punishes those that the law condemns. And any talk that excludes love, any talk that excludes damnation, any, any talk, any preaching or teaching that leads to anything different than the doctrine that has been laid down, and the aim of the Christian life being love, is substandard at best. So there's a course correction that always leads us back to love. The aim is love. The goal is love. The standard is love. And that love is for the good of others and the glory of God. It is love that is echoed back to God who loved us first. That's the aim. Galatians 5, 6. A lot of Galatians 5 in here, right? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And you want to see the perfect statement on the law? We've, we've seen it several times in application, but we'll look at it again. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not mur commit murder, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And listen, you can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit of God in and through you can do that. So when the Holy Spirit is working to convict, to draw, to encourage, to heal, to bless, to lead, to teach, He's doing it toward the purpose of love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel tells us, based on biblical doctrine that we are to give our full attention to, that trying to earn your salvation is anathema. 
But God in His love saves us so that our aim might be love. Anything contrary to that is false doctrine and needs to be corrected. And we'll move into the rest of 1 Timothy starting next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. God, thank you that your love is perfect. God, help us to give right attention to the doctrine that you've laid out for us in the Scriptures. May we know that it is anathema to trust in the law to try to save us, to try to save ourselves by anything that we've done. And God, I pray that you would make the aim of our lives, the aim of our gospel-saturated lives, love. Love for you and love for our neighbor so that the whole law might be fulfilled in us who trust not on our own ability but in the perfect power of your omnipotent spirit whom you have caused to live within us. And God, if there's anybody here that has not placed their trust in Christ, by the power of that same omnipotent spirit, God, raise them to new life in Christ and may they put their faith in the finished work of Christ who died for their sins to free them from the condemnation of the law so that they might love truly and purely according to the power that you give. Help us, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? A different one this week. Familiar, but different. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us if you can.